Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Even if you're not a parent, I think you understand the idea of wanting what is best for your kids. And if you're like us in our household, where both of us work outside of the home, that means that daycare is a necessity. So when our oldest was getting close to two years old, we needed a daycare for her. And so we went, we looked at a lot of places, interviewed with directors, found one that we liked, went back and interviewed with the director again. Just before her second birthday, we show up for our first day in her new digs. It was an absolute disaster. I walked away angry. My wife walked away guilty and crying because she felt like a bad mom. And our daughter literally had to be pried away from us so we could walk out the door. It was a bad environment. Maybe this has happened to you. You've heard about a restaurant. Other people say good things about it. And you go there and for whatever reason, you have a bad experience. It doesn't live up to the expectation. You rent a vacation house and the pictures, maybe the description are a little bit or a lot a bit deceptive versus what reality is. Or if you're apartment hunting, surely you know what a bad environment looks like as you're apartment hunting. Now for us, this wasn't just the, I miss mommy, I miss daddy, I don't know who this person is who's taking me. It was a really bad environment. And what we didn't know is you needed key card access to get into the building and to get into the wing where the daycare facility was. So we wandered around aimlessly outside and inside until somebody was nice enough to let us in. And we get to the classroom where our daughter's going to be in and we see the teacher. We make eye contact with the teacher and for 30 seconds, nothing happens. Now, I'm not going to sit here in 30 seconds of silence right now because that would get really weird really fast for all of us in the room, but I was really frustrated. I was agitated. So finally, I couldn't take the silence anymore, and I said, we're new. It's our first day. We don't know what to do. A little harsh. The woman, the teacher who is in the room, she looks up, doesn't introduce herself, doesn't stand up, doesn't talk to us or to our daughter. Her response is... You can just leave your stuff on the floor. I got it. We're good. And me and my wife kind of look at each other like, no, we're not good. And then we look around the room, and chaos is happening around the room. The kids are fighting over toys. They're fighting over iPads. And the ratio, we know what the appropriate teacher-to-student ratio is, and the ratio is far above that. So technically, this room is illegal, and we're about ready to leave our daughter in this environment And we walk away and we feel like we're bad, terrible people for leaving our daughter there. Bad environments lead to bad experiences. It's just as simple as that. Now, if you're here for the first time today, we are going through a series about our collective values, what we espouse, our DNA. And two weeks ago, we learned about endless second chances, grace. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or make God love you any less than he does right now. Last week, we continued with being rooted in truth. We talked about the Bible and that we trust scripture because it leads to the best way to live. We're carrying on with that today. We're talking about our third value, come and see. 
We join in the greatest mission on earth by creating intentional environments where people can bump into Jesus so that he can do what only he can do. And it's embodied in those three words, come and see. And as you're soon going to connect today, this is a phrase that's used a lot in the Bible. Here, we use it to create our environments, encourage everyone to invite others, and to build our community. And the story that we're going to look at today comes from the book of John. John was a guy who was around when Jesus lived. He was one of his friends, one of his disciples. And after Jesus, his time on earth had gone, John wrote down his narrative, his account of the story of Jesus. And what's really cool about this part of the Bible that we're looking at today is it's the longest interaction we have between Jesus and another person. So if you're skeptical about church or if you're bought in and you love Jesus, either way, you're going to walk out of here today with a really great, authentic picture of the person that Jesus was and Jesus is. But because this conversation is so long, just to be honest with you, there's a lot that we miss the first pass through it. We don't understand the culture. We don't understand the geography. We don't understand the time period. So we miss a lot. But the culmination of this whole entire story, John chapter 4, verses 28 and 29. The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? And so already you see there's those words that we have made our own, come and see. And if you know anything about the story, or if you're just a really good guesser, you know the man that she is talking about is Jesus. But before we look deeper into her response or the conversation that they had, let's peel back some of the layers of complexity. The story, John, opens up in verses 3 and 4 by telling us that Jesus left Judea to go to Galilee by way of Samaria. And if you're like I was four days ago, you're like, cool, I have no idea what that means. Judea and Galilee are regions of the Middle East. Think a smaller version of the geographic areas we have here, the Mid-Atlantic and the South. And Samaria just so happens to be right smack dab in the middle of those two regions. So Judea, where he was, is approximately 31 miles away from where he is going in Samaria. And so Jesus and his disciples, his friends, walk a marathon plus before this encounter ever actually happens. What about these people, the Samaritans? He went to Samaria. They were known as the Samaritans. What about these people? What do the religious leaders, the Jews... Jesus himself was a Jew. What does a typical Jew think about the Samaritan people? Now, this gets really, really nerdy, really fast, but the Samaritans and the Jews used to be aligned. Everything was cool. They worshiped in the same way. Everybody was on the same page. It was great. But in the Jews' eyes, the Samaritans made specific intentional decisions that distanced themselves from God. And so the Jews' response was to distance themselves from the Samaritans. And so naturally, Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. They thought they were better than Samaritans. However, we can clearly see through Jesus' action, he is prioritizing this place, Samaria. He is telling the Samaritans, you are important. That's why I'm here. 
And we at Collective, we just celebrated our second birthday. We haven't been around that long, but we chose Frederick because we want to tell you and everybody living around this area, you are important. That's why we're here. Restoration between the Jews and the Samaritans was very important to Jesus. And this is further seen in one, another book of the Bible called Acts. Acts 1.8, the very last words that Jesus says before he goes away and goes up to heaven, Acts 1.8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying, don't just tell people about me that are Jews. Go to Samaria. Go to this place that you don't like, that you detest, and tell them about me too. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, he initiates a conversation with this woman, and her response is, come and see. Come and see. The invitation of come and see is a really powerful thing, as I found out a few years ago. It was August of 2014. I just moved to Bowling Green, Ohio, a little tiny town in the middle of nowhere as a student at Bowling Green State University starting my doctoral program. I was really excited for the hope and the ambition of what was to come. Really, what that means, somebody finally accepted me after years of being turned away from all the grad schools that I applied to. But this one accepted me, and I was there, and I was full of hope and promise for the future, specifically my dream of becoming a professor. And so I got a graduate assistantship. If you don't know what that means, I did not pay any tuition to attend school. Great deal. And in return, I worked for the university, so they covered my tuition. And if you know anything about me, I am the Dave Ramsey guy here at church. I teach Financial Peace University how to implement financial wisdom into your life. It should come as no surprise that I graduated debt-free. But my job that they assigned me to was to teach undergraduate students in speech fundamentals. Only problem is I've never taught anything in my entire life. I've only been in the classroom as a student. And after a day and a half crash course of here's what you need to know, good luck, go out and make it happen. And being the instructor meant that I was the instructor of record. There was no professor oversight. There was no assistant. It was me and the students in the classroom. And so my first day teaching, I'm a duck on the water. I'm acting calm and cool, but inside I'm churning. I'm nervous. I have all kinds of nervous energy. I'm sweating. So I wanted to be hyper-prepared in order to make it look like I was cool, calm, and collected, which I was not. So I thought I had thought of every single detail. I was going to show up at 7.30, half an hour early, make sure I knew how the technology worked. The computer was on. The lights were on. The tables and chairs were there. I wanted to cover every possible detail. And so I thought I had, and I walk in the room at 7.30, and there's three sets of eyeballs that are my students staring at me as I walk into the room. And in my mind, I'm like, what are you doing here at 7.30 in the morning? But they just stare at me, and it was a curveball I didn't expect, and it was 30 excruciating minutes of awkwardness. I tried to make conversation with them to kill time, but it was really silent one-word answers, and that was it. 
And then I tried to act like I was confident, but I kept having to clear my throat. So my response to that was, well, maybe I'll just go like into the bathroom, clear my throat and come back and be all cool. But it's weird if you're hanging out in the bathroom and you're not doing anything in the bathroom. Don't be that guy. So it was 30 minutes of me just melting in a puddle of my own sweat. And normally when I preach, I come to a point of tension like that in a story and kind of pause that for dramatic effect and then come back to it later. But there is no need for that today. It was an awful train wreck for everybody in the room. I was incredibly nervous. I could tell that my students were bored. And for the whole entire semester, I never recovered. And that was the theme for the whole semester. The only reason I went from being an absolutely terrible instructor to a not-quite-so-terrible instructor is because I got to know a couple of my professors that I was in class with. I think they had pity on me, and they said, hey, why don't you come into my class and observe how I teach? The best way to learn about how to be a good instructor, a good professor, is to watch somebody do it in action. So I saw a professor-student interaction. I saw good lesson plans, interactive activities, how a professor is supposed to appropriately take charge of the classroom. I got a lesson in all of this firsthand, and it changed the way I teach even now to this day. And it was really profound, but it was also really simple. They said to me, come and see. The exact same thing that this woman said after her interaction with Jesus. And as we're about to find out, Jesus starts off the conversation by asking her for a cup of water. And it's like, well, no, duh, that makes sense. You go walk to the inner harbor in Baltimore on a nice hot day like today and see how you feel when you get there. He's thirsty, but don't miss it. He asks a Samaritan woman for some water. She acknowledges how strange this is in verse 9. Verse 9 says that she was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she asked Jesus, she's like, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? What's really interesting, the Greek, one of the original languages of the Bible, translates here as the sharing of eating and utensils. So Jesus was asking her for a drink, but Jesus was also saying, give me the things that you brought for a drink, and I want to use those for a drink for myself. And this, just like so many interactions with Jesus, are completely countercultural to social norms of the day. Even Jesus' disciples, look it up in verse 27, they're really surprised. They're like, yo, why are you talking to this woman? But they're not brave enough to say anything to him because he's Jesus after all. And so the story continues in verses 10 through verse 15. Jesus replies to this woman, if you knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman says, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. 
So let's pause for just a minute and kind of break down this interaction that is happening. Jesus opens up the conversation and he's like, yo, I am the dude. Like you and every other Samaritan, the person that you have been waiting for, expecting, person that has been promised to you, I am that dude right here in front of you. She completely misses it. She hears him talk about living water. Maybe she interprets that for running water, which would have been a cleaner water source. She wants this water. If he has a better version of water, cool, give me that water. But also at the same time, she opens up the door for deeper conversation. She asks him, are you better than this dude who's a hero of our faith? This dude being a guy named Jacob that she's referring to, we don't have time to get into his story, but if you read the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Jacob is a prominent part of that book, and she and every other Samaritan looked up to and respected Jacob. Jesus hears the question, but he doesn't answer her. He starts talking about water again, and so her response is literal. She's like, okay, I asked him this deep question. He's avoiding it. I'm just going to go back to the literal. Maybe you actually mean you're going to give me some water. Genesis, that same first book of the Bible, 2413, tells us in that culture, at that time period, it was the woman's job daily to go and draw water to provide for the family. And I can personally attest, after living in rural Uganda for a year, this practice still exists today. There, in that culture, it is the woman's job to go and draw water daily for the family. The Ugandan women carry these ginormous water jugs full of water on their head, perfectly balanced, not spilling anything, and they walk home every day. It's hot every day in Uganda. They come back every day. They carry the water home every day. And so this woman is like, man, this is awesome. You're going to make my life so much easier. This is a major chore that I have to do every single day. But if I can cut that out, cool. I'm still not sure who you are. Kind of strange, kind of awesome dude. But I'm in. Like, I'm sold. Give me this water. Jesus responds in a strange way. He's like, hey, go get your husband. Uh, I don't really have a husband. Yep, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the dude you're with right now isn't even your husband. If you've heard this sermon preached before, you may have heard the theme that this woman was loose in the sexual term. Five husbands. Man she's with now isn't even her husband. That's why, after all, she comes to the well at noon, close, close to the heat of the day rather than early in the morning because she has a perception around this whole entire village and she knows she's just going to get talked about. So rather than avoiding the side glances with all the other women, I'm just going to come do my work when nobody's here and I'm going to go home. But there is nothing in Jesus' account with this woman nor in John retelling the story that tells us that's what's going on. I think there might be something different going on. So after Jesus calls her out about not having a husband and the man that she's living with now, this is her response in verses 19 and 20. Sir, the woman says, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship? While we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gezerim where our ancestors worshiped. So before, she asked Jesus to compare himself to this guy, Jacob, and he doesn't bite, but he redirects the conversation. So she dives deep again, just in another way. She's obviously very knowledgeable about religion. She's professing her growing faith in him. She calls him a prophet. 
And so she goes straight for the deepest question she can think of. Okay, guy, if you really are a prophet, answer this really nerdy but really important question in my religious history. What she's asking is really simple. Where do we worship God? And the conversation goes on from there in ways that we don't have time to get into. But the one point that we have to cover is that Jesus literally tells the woman, I am the Messiah. Messiah is a churchy word. Messiah means the one God promised. So in the beginning of the conversation, Jesus tells the woman, I am the guy. I'm the guy you've been looking for. And then he comes back full circle. And very literally, he tells me, the person that has been promised to you, that you've been looking for, talking about for 400 years, is standing right here in front of you. That leads to the culmination of the entire story, verses 28 and 29 again. The woman left her jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been promised? She left everything to invite other people to experience Jesus. Now granted, it wasn't much. It was a few dishes, but she left everything that she had and her response after this encounter was to go invite everybody that she knew to come and meet and experience Jesus. Jesus. So what does this mean for us? I mean, that's a really cool story in the Bible, but like present day, now, what does this mean for us? How does this impact us? And if you're ready to take that step, how do I embody these core values, this core value of come and see? Well, first we're going to talk about as a church, and then we're going to break it down on an individual level. Here at Collective, everything is done with purpose and intentionality. If we're inviting you to come and see, then we have told our staff, our volunteers, nothing but our A game is acceptable. There's a dude named Andy Stanley. He has a church plant in Atlanta. He's very famous in church circles. And he wrote a book, and part of the book is talking about environment. And he says, environment matters. We all understand what a bad environment looks like and feels like because we've been to that restaurant, that vacation home. Maybe we can commiserate about daycare stories, but we understand bad environments when we are in them and we refuse to let that happen here. I'm going to quickly speak to one environment that I know. I know here they do a great job in the gym. Kids is an awesome experience, but I know what happens outside in the parking lot. I love being outside with the parking team. And we've had a lot of discussions about a lot of different things. Where do the parking signs go? What kind of parking signs should we have? How big should they be? What should the flow of traffic look like on a Sunday morning? How do we make people feel welcome in the parking lot as they're walking in? How loud should the music be? How do we enhance safety for people walking in? How many volunteers should we have outside? When do we start breaking down the signs? Are we doing a good job of transitioning over so first-time service people move so that we in second service have a time to come and have a place to park and be welcomed in? And really, honestly, that's just kind of like the tip of the sword of what we talk about. There's been disagreements. There's been tension. There's been a lot of email chains and long meetings about this. And people have walked away, yes, frustrated. I have walked away from these conversations frustrated. People have walked away inspired. But ultimately, people walk away with the big vision in mind. Environment matters. 
And it is imperative that we do everything that we can here to create a distraction-free environment for you to be able to bump into Jesus. It is so important that we get the parking lot right because the sermon starts the minute you drive on campus. And we think about that. We want this to be the easiest, safest, most distraction-free parking lot experience you're ever going to find. And to be honest, research backs this up. Most of you, especially if you're a first-time guest, by the time I start talking, you've already decided if you're coming back or not. Churchleaders.com tells us this process happens within the first 10 minutes, which honestly, in my opinion, is about nine minutes too generous. So here's another way to say this. Often, often... The barrier to people experiencing Jesus isn't spiritual. It's you. It's me. And it's this environment. We treat our parking lot environment like it determines whether or not people experience Jesus. And I personally don't think it's too grandiose to say some people could be in heaven or not because of our signs and because of our people outside. And when I hear it like that, when I say it out loud that, like that, it makes me wonder, are we having enough hard conversations to make sure that we're getting it right? Environment matters in every aspect of the church. Our colors have been chosen for a reason. Kids' check-in is as efficient as possible. We have a new parents' room. I have babies. I understand that babies cry. We have a new parents' room where babies can be babies and they can be allowed to cry. Parents don't have to feel the weight of the whole entire gym staring at them, and they still get to hear the message in the new parents' room. This gym is as dark as we can make it, and the music is as full as possible because we want to create a worship experience that is meaningful for you. We don't want you to feel embarrassed about singing because the person next to you might be able to hear you. Everything is done for a reason. Non-verbally, we are saying, when you come here, we want you to come and see Jesus. Jesus says you matter to me, and we are telling you through our environment that you matter to us. Now, in addition to this, part of come and see depends on you. If you are bought in, you should be inviting people into this experience with you. The leaders of this church create the environment, but it's on you, and it's kind of your turn to go out and say, come and see to others. It is not your job to convince people to follow Jesus but you should be making the introduction. So maybe you're like me, you hear this and you struggle. Like you hear this story and you're like, man, I'm not like Jesus. I try to have conversations with people about Jesus and it goes nothing like what we just heard. I know right now I'm trying to be intentional about introducing a couple of friends to Jesus and it's hard. It's going slow. It's probably my fault. But just to be honest, I get discouraged. Things don't happen as often, as quickly as I think they should happen, it makes it hard to keep investing and it makes it hard to keep inviting. It can be really easy to give up and just say, man, I tried for like three weeks, I tried for a whole month and nothing happened. I guess we're just not interested. But in my case, one of my friends has been out of church for 20 years and I'm just being real, a few invitations versus 20 years of life, what do you expect that outcome to be? If I give up after four or five tries but fail to consider two decades worth of life, I'm the one who's incredibly short-sighted and shallow. 
How long are you, how long am I, willing to invest, pray, invite others to come and see? Be encouraged that this can take time, even from somebody who's been a Christian for over 20 years. Sometimes it takes months and years for the impact to be tangibly seen. Invite others to come and see anyways. So on a real practical level, what does come and see mean? If you're ready to embody this and step into this core value that we have, what does this mean on a daily and on a weekly level? There's going to be a whole list of things coming up of how you can embody this value of come and see. Number one, be present here. I personally think this hot, gross, summy, summer, muggy weather that is never ending is awesome. You walk into your car after work and it's like a sauna and it's suffocating. It is beautiful, flip-flops forever. But I know at some point it's going to get cold. And you wake up on a Sunday morning, you're in your pajamas, you move over to the couch, you wrap up in a blanket, and it feels really comfortable and you don't want to move. When that day comes... Be here anyways. Invite people to be here regularly. If you are bought in, again, you should be doing that naturally. Invite people to this experience with you. If you're not bought in and if you're skeptical, invite people to come with you just so you can get a second opinion to make sure they're seeing things the way that you see things. Have people into your home or your apartment. I don't care if you have a big fat house or you have a tiny little apartment. I've lived in plenty of places where I've been embarrassed to let anybody come over. And I've been on the other end of the spectrum where I've had way more space than I ever needed. The conditions of your living environment don't matter. What matters is the invitation for other people to do life with you in your home. Next up, meet somebody for coffee. I mean, I personally think coffee is disgusting. It's gross. Blah. There are many things that are so much better than coffee. Ice cream is better. Milkshakes are better. Beer, if that's your thing, that is definitely better. But initiate a conversation and invite somebody to get together. Talk about stuff that matters. We could talk for an hour about how bad the Ravens are. That's easy. But talk about things that matter. Real, authentic life. Up next, pursue past the point of awkwardness. Every relational dynamic has a point to where it becomes awkward. And we usually get freaked out by that. It is completely natural. It's in my textbooks that I teach about communication and relationships. And when we bump up against that, our response is, oh, it's weird. Let's back off. But if you pursue past that point of awkwardness, you engage in real and authentic life. Last one, what the world calls mentoring, we call discipleship. If you are mature in your Christian faith, train somebody younger than you in their faith of how to live passionately for Jesus. They can be older than you. They can be younger than you. Initiate a conversation. Hey, let's just get together for a week, week after week, and let's just talk about Jesus. To kind of close and wrap all this up, I'll say to you, Jesus says to you, come and see. I hope by now you see that that's evident and it's obvious. But look in John chapter 1 this week. This is when Jesus is beginning his ministry. And John gives the narrative of this. And Jesus' invitation to these people who are going to become his friends and his disciples is really simple. It's three words. 
I bet you can already guess what those three words are. Come and see. What Jesus said to his disciples, he's saying to you and he's saying to me today, come and see. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for today. God, I just appreciate how easily accessible you are. God, we know that you search for us, that you seek after us. And when we feel that, when we come up against that and we feel that invitation, that come and see invitation, I pray that we are bold enough to step into that. It may be scary. We may not have a clue what that looks like, but give us the boldness to step into that anyways. It's in your son's name. Amen.